I became a pastor, uh, I think because God called me to become a pastor. And, and I know that one of the reasons God's called me into the role that I'm in is because I have in me a natural love for people. Do you know some people don't like people? It's true. And that's, that's who God made them to be. I, I, I just love people. And, and when I see you, uh, and, and when I haven't seen you for a while, it awakens in me a memory of, of the reasons that God called me to be in the, in the role that I'm in. And when I see no, new folks, same thing. Uh, when I get up in the morning, I pray that God will make something good of whatever efforts I'm able to put into the work of the day. And I do that every morning. And I did that this morning. And I did it, especially this morning, for a specific reason. And when I write a message, I think of what God might do with it with the folks who are here. And I'm going to start off by telling you what I hope for. Here it is. It is three things. I'm aiming at hopefulness, gratitude, and growth in all of you. Think of those three words for a minute and imagine that they describe you. Hopeful, grateful, and growing. My guess is that most of us here would say, I could use more hope than I've got right now this morning. I could use a little more hope. I could become a person who faces life with a bit more gratitude than I currently do. And I could be someone who is growing more effectively than I am currently right now. Is that descriptive of anyone here? Yes. Uh, my aim this morning is to have God use me so that in every one of you, there's more hope and there's more gratitude and there is more growth. And, and the way we'll find our, ourselves hopefully on that path is by focusing on two gardens which are prominent in the scriptures. Uh, we have been focusing on this theme of the gardener and the king for these weeks behind us. This is just review for those of you who are here for the first time. This will be brand new. Uh, the Bible starts with, with a garden scene. And in that garden, God, who created the world, invites the man and the woman he's made in his image to have the task of gardening. Uh, this is not well known, but in the, in the centuries behind us, uh, many of the stories that ancient people had about how the world came into being, a garden features prominently. And in the story that the Bible tells, what's surprising is that the God who made the world would invite his creatures also to be the gardeners. And the reason that's surprising is in the ancient world, it was the king who was the gardener. Not the servants, the king. And so the Bible starts with a story of a garden in which the, the God who created man and woman in his image gives them the dignity of a royal task to also be gardeners with him. Now, if you know this, the way the story goes in the Bible, things fall apart in that garden. Do you know that? In Eden, Adam and Eve go the wrong way and everything falls apart. What I want to show you this morning is that everything that went wrong in that garden begins to be made right in another garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. Do some of you know the story of the Garden of Gethsemane? If you don't, I'm going to unfold that for us as well. We're going to begin in that garden. But what we're going to see is that as everything went wrong in the first garden, God begins to make everything right in this second garden. And it all comes down to the decision which Jesus made in Gethsemane. If you know that story already, take this to heart. Listen to me. That decision which Jesus made in Gethsemane, it had implications that reached back into the past, all the way forward into the future, and, and which are meaningful for you and for me right now, today. The past, 
the future and the present, all are wrapped up in what Jesus did there. I'll unfold it in a bit. But for now, what I want you to know is that because of what Jesus did, you are completely free to become hopeful and grateful and to begin growing again. And that's what God wants for every one of you. Wherever you are in faith, it's what God wants for you. Let's start with the Garden of Gethsemane. All four Gospels which tell the story of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of them arrive at the pinnacle of dramatic tension in the same place in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know about the last meal that Jesus shared with his disciples and how grave that last meal was because there around that table in the city of Jerusalem, he told them again that ahead of him was his death. They couldn't believe it. They didn't want to believe it. They loved him so much they didn't want to see him go. But after that meal, he led them out from Jerusalem. They crossed the valley and they began to go up the hill that they were accustomed to going up because they knew at the top there was the Garden of Gethsemane. It was the place where they went together to be at peace to be at ease, to rest, and to feel like they were communing with their heavenly father. Do you have a place that you go to where you feel at ease and at peace in life? Do you? I can see some of you smiling. Uh, I have that place myself. This place, the garden, was that for Jesus and his friends. Only on this night, it was not a place of peace and rest. It was a place of anguish. It was a terrible evening. Because Jesus knew, listen now, he knew that as he entered that garden, he was right on the edge of the point of no return. He still had in his heart and in his mind a desire not to face what he would face if he remained in that garden. And so he brought his friends there to stay awake with him and to pray because he knew now's the moment where I have to make a decision. Do I see it through or do I flee? And he was right on the edge of no return at that garden. Mark is one of the Gospels that tells what happens there, and we're going to look at it together. In the 14th chapter, in the 32nd verse, the details are unfolded. If you want to follow along, find Mark 14, verse 32, and here's what we read. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took with him Peter and James and John and began to be distressed and agitated distressed and agitated, their understatements. Jesus had known many challenges in his life. He had a very difficult road to walk from day one, but none of them were as hard as the one that he faced in this moment, knowing that if he stays in this garden, he's going to be arrested. And it's all going to be set off by Judas. Try to picture this. One of the 12 apostles whom Jesus had selected by hand to be his closest companions was the one who was not there when they first arrived at the garden. And Jesus knows why. He's gone to get a battalion of soldiers. And Jesus knows that soon, if he remains there, Judas will return with these soldiers who will arrest him and then the cross will become inevitable. Have you ever been betrayed by a close friend? I wish that I couldn't say yes, but I can. And many of you can. Imagine the anguish in Jesus' heart not only knowing that it's going to be one of his friends who's going to set this all off, but if he stays, then he will not be able to go in any other direction than the cross on Calvary. Watch what happens in verse 34. And he said to them, I am deeply grieved even to death. Remain here and keep awake. Nothing helps in times of anguish like good friends. And Jesus has brought these three, his closest friends with him because it's his worst anguish. He tells them, you stay awake. But then this statement, 
I am deeply grieved even to death. That means my grief is so heavy right now, it feels as though I am going to die under the weight of it. Has anyone's heart ever felt so heavy that you feel that it's threatening your physical well-being? That it's so heavy right now, I feel like I might die. That's what Jesus is going through in this moment because that's how hard the conflict he faces is right there in the garden. Verse 35, and going a little further, he threw himself on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Here's Mark's way of telling us what Jesus is asking for. And what he's asking for is that he should not have to face what he knows God wants him to face. And here we have the clearest picture of the conflict before Jesus. To simplify it, we could say it like this. There are two paths still before him. One path is to do what God wants him to do. The other path is to do what he wants to do. And in this moment, he does not want to obey the will of the Father because he knows that at the end of that is a cross. Instead, he wants to go some other way. He wants the hour to pass from him. And he is so sincere about this desire that he expresses it by throwing himself on the ground. That's just how desperately he's wrestling with this choice. And then in verse 36, Mark actually, actually lets us hear his prayer. He said, Abba, Father, that is a very tender way to address another. It's Jesus' expression of his closeness with the Father, but then he says, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me. It's another way for Jesus to say, I know that you can do anything, and I'm asking you now to do this one thing. Take the cup from me. Do not make me have to continue on this path. Now here, in this conflict, what we are overseeing is a, a wrestling with a profoundly significant decision, and it's between, in the simplest way, obedience on the one hand and disobedience on the other. It's got to be one or the other. Either Jesus has to do what the Father has required of him or not. His decision comes clear in how his prayer ends, but before we see it, listen carefully, everything comes down to whether he obeys God in the garden. Okay, let that sink in for a minute. Everything comes down to whether in this moment Jesus chooses to obey the Father. Look at the end of his prayer. Yet not what I want, but what you want. Now before I unfold what that means, I have to tell you this. That prayer right there is for you. The reason that Jesus at this fork in the road submitted his will to the Father is because of the love that he has for you. And I say that in the present tense. His love for you, his love for you is what pushed him to decide to put down his own desire, which was to run away from the cross, and instead say to the Heavenly Father, whatever you want, that is what I'll do. And this is the moment where we see that Jesus decides to do exactly what God requires of him, even though he wants the opposite. And with this decision in this garden, and again, to make it as simple as possible, with this man's decision in this garden to obey, he settles the conflict that began in the first garden, in the Garden of Eden. And this is where I want you to take to heart now, and I'm going to unfold it for you. The implications of his decision here reach back into the past, ahead into the future, and they mean something for you and me right now in this present. Back in the past, hope. Ahead in the future, gratitude. Right now, growth. Let's start with the past. I want you to think with me all the way back to the beginning. If you know the story of the Garden of Eden, this is review for you. If you don't, listen, God calls the entire creation into being with his word. Christians believe that. 
The Judeo-Christian worldview says, at the beginning there was nothing, God spoke a word, and all of creation came into being. With all of its splendor and all of its beauty, and the pinnacle of God's creation was the man and the woman who he made in his image. Out of the dirt he formed them, he breathed life into them, and they had true life, which means they were agents that were completely and totally free. They were naked and unashamed. They could be who they were before one another without any of the awkwardness that you know all too well. And it was joy, and it was peace, and it was gladness. And then this God says to them, you be gardeners with me. Does anyone in here garden in real life? Please show me your hand if you do. More of you should start doing that. It is such a unique pleasure. It really is. God made us for that. And here they are in the garden, and they are free, and it is wonderful. But listen now, in the Garden of Eden, they had a wrestling match. They had two paths spreading out before them, like Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. In their case, the two paths were either to obey God or to disobey God. In their case, it was go anywhere in the garden and have any tree in the garden, but not that one in the center, God said to them. And not because he wanted to keep something from them, but because it was not their place. The center belonged to him. And the, and the fruit that grew on that tree would not be good for them. And so he put a boundary around it, and that put them in a place of, of anguish and wrestling. What are we missing? What are we losing? And in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve make the opposite choice that Jesus made. Think of this. Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done. In the Garden, Adam and Eve say, not your will, but our will be done. And the consequence of that decision on their part is a curse that covers all of creation. If you ever wondered, why are there so many things in this world that wound, irrationally wound people? Why can't we get along? Why can't we seem, as human beings, to treat each other with the dignity that obviously we all deserve? The way the Bible answers that prayer is, it all came from the decision that Adam and Eve made in that first garden to go in the wrong way. That's where it all came from. But listen now, and this is what I'm giving you first of all, which is meant to put you in the position of being a hopeful person. The decision which Jesus made in, in the garden where he was, his choice reversed what happened in the Garden of Eden. I can put it like this. In Eden, Adam and Eve's choice for disobedience brings a curse over all of creation. In Gethsemane, Jesus' choice for obedience brings a blessing over all creation. So that the thorns and the thistles that came to infest the ground in every garden because of Adam and Eve have finally been dealt with because of what Jesus did in this garden. So that the wound that ruins all of our relationships is finally healed. So that the price of our guilt is finally paid and the curse is lifted at last. What was broken in one garden is fixed in another. And look at how Paul puts it. This is Romans 5.18. And you should take this one to heart. There Paul writes... Therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, the one man he has in mind there is Adam. And the trespass he has in mind there is Adam's decision not to obey God. That, that choice that Adam made, it led to condemnation for all. It's the cloud that's over every day. It's, it's the wound that you carry into every relationship. It's the failure that always dogs you that you can never get away from. That comes from one man's trespass, and Paul goes on to say, so one man's act of righteousness. There he's thinking of Jesus' act in the garden of Gethsemane to say yes to the Father, even though he wanted to say no. That leads to justification and life for all. Uh, listen, take this to heart. Justification is a term that describes a relationship that has been healed and made right again. Life is just that. It is 
the freedom to exist without anything hampering you. And that is the consequence of Jesus' decision in Gethsemane. And, and here, let me be very plain about this. In the same way that Adam's misdeed in the past brought condemnation and death for all, Jesus' righteous deed here in Gethsemane brings the opposite justification and life for all. A part of you might say, then why don't I see that everywhere I look? That's a question for another time. Before we answer that, we are invited here to accept that Jesus did in our place what was right, that is to become a curse, uh, so that we ourselves could no longer receive the, the guilty verdict from God, but instead the, the verdict of innocence. Because Jesus decided in this garden to take our place and then to turn over the curse. And what that means, if we'll take it to heart, is that we can be hopeful. And that's what you're invited to now. And that is your decision. Hope is not something that spontaneously comes. It's the result of a decision that someone makes in faith to say, I will accept that and then I will let the consequences grow in this heart of mine like a good seed grows in the garden. Please take this to heart. The thorns and the thistles that came from Adam and Eve's disobedience no longer have to have the last word in your life. They don't. Uh, Jesus overcame the curse through the decision he made. And you are therefore invited in relationship to yourself, first of all, to be hopeful. Here's a time for you to be honest with yourself. Does anyone feel hopeless when they look at themselves honestly? Yes or no? It's hard to admit that, but sometimes we do. Uh, I, I see some folks saying no, and I'm thankful for that. As a pastor, I can tell you, there are some who I sit with who when they are honest with themselves, they feel no hope. This invites you to be hopeful. How about this? Uh, with some of the people in your life, are you tempted to feel hopeless? That's easier to say yes, isn't it? Can't we all think of one person who makes us feel hopeless, yes or no? Yes. You are invited here to be hopeful for that person too. Jesus' decision in the garden was for them too. He decided to become a curse for them also. And therefore, you are invited to see that person who you've been tempted to give up on. You're, you're invited to see them with hope in your heart. And not just them, but also this world altogether. Here, I know emphatically that if I ask you, the, the, the affairs of our world these days tempt you with hopelessness. Of course, we all say yes. But here again, we're invited because of what Jesus did in that garden that has an effect on the past to be hopeful. Because just as one man's act of disobedience brought condemnation and death for all, so one man's act of righteousness brings justification and life for all. And that is the word of God, and it is true. And we are invited, therefore, to be hopeful. Gethsemane reaches back, and it cancels out the effect of Adam's disobedience in Eden. That's the first thing. How about the impact for the future? Let's, let's turn our attention from back there and look ahead. How many of you worry about what's ahead? Are any, do we have any worriers here? How many of you think all the way ahead? Some of you will. I, I'm, I'm speaking as a preacher now. Listen, how many of you worry about what's all the way ahead? Do you know that in the end, we will all stand before the righteous God and he will want to see what we did with this life that we have been given by him as a gift. I know in my experience, there are some people, there are three people. One person doesn't believe in that and says that's just uh, a tool for manipulation that religious people made up. Uh, I would say to that person this morning, unless you are 100% sure that is true, you should at least entertain the possibility that maybe there will be a day where you also stand before that God. There's another person who says, I believe in it, but then never thinks about it. To that person, I would say, let's think about that for the next five minutes. Would you do that with me? It could make a world of difference. And then there are some people who think about it all the time, uh, and they're afraid of it. 
I, I received a text message from a pastor last week. Uh, he and I were friends in seminary. Here's what he wrote. He said, Christian, if you had a congregant who was constantly anxious about losing salvation or fearing that they never had it in the first place, what would you want them to understand about the gospel to help them? Maybe there's someone like that here. I said to him, I would want them to understand, first of all, that they don't need to be afraid because of what Jesus has done for them. The gospel, first of all, is a declaration about what Jesus has done, not what we must do or what we must believe or how we must carry ourselves or what we must think. That's not the first thing. The first thing is what Jesus did. And in my mind, when I answered my friend, I was thinking about Gethsemane. I was thinking about the decision which Jesus made in that garden, which has an impact for the future. Did you notice when Mark reported the words of Jesus, what he said, what he asked for? Okay, at first Mark said he wanted the hour to pass, but when Jesus spoke, did you notice what he spoke of? That the cup would pass from him. The cup is a very old image of divine judgment. You, you, you read about it in Isaiah and in Jeremiah, when those two prophets are looking at the world and they are seeing the wickedness of mankind and they are thinking God is furious at the injustice and the unrighteousness that he sees right here, they use an image of a cup to capture the wrath of God which they sincerely hope that will one day be poured out upon the wicked. Can we admit that when we see someone abusing a powerless person, there's a part of us that wants them to suffer the consequences themselves for the evil things they are doing. The prophets depicted that dynamic with a cup when they said one day God will give them a cup of his wrath and they will have to drink it down. What the prophets meant is they should have to experience the consequences of their misdeeds so personally that it would be like taking the wine in a cup inside of themselves. That's how one day the wrath of God will be experienced by those people. The prophets spoke of it. Do you know that when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, one thing he knew for sure is that because of the patience of God, he had not yet given the world the cup of his wrath which their deeds had deserved. Only because of his patience. Jesus knew that. And there in the garden, he knew a second thing, and it was that if he ended up on the cross, that would be the moment when the righteous wrath of God against all wickedness would finally be poured out into a cup, and if he went to the cross, he knew he would be drinking it down himself. Try to get this in your mind. Christians believe that Jesus is God incarnate, and that the righteousness of God's wrath against all human sin is fair but here what we see is in Christ, God decides not to give that cup to his enemies, but instead to drink that cup for his enemies. Can you imagine? Again, whatever you think about religions or how often you think about the end and judgment, just get this, that in Gethsemane, God himself and Jesus is saying, I will not give the cup to my enemies, but I will drink the cup for my enemies. Do you know that at the Last Supper before this garden, Jesus gave them a cup of blessing? He did that at the Last Supper. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant sealed in my blood. It is for you, for the forgiveness of sins. And he was able to give them that cup of blessing because deep down he knew that he would be drinking the cup of wrath for them. And that has happened. And that means that if you ever think of that final judgment and you imagine yourself standing there before God on judgment day, you should not be afraid or anxious, but you should be grateful because the cup has been drunk already for you. That's the truth. And you are free to accept that and believe it, or you are bound, if you choose so, not to believe it. And if you choose not to believe it, then you'll always be bound every time you think about judgment by fear and anxiety. But you are invited this morning 
to accept it because of what Jesus did in this Garden of Gethsemane to let the truth about the future make you a grateful person. Wouldn't you like to have more gratitude in your life? Oh, it's just so much better when we're grateful. And here again, the invitation for you from God himself is to be grateful. Why? Here, here's how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Uh, Let me just clarify. God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin. He did that for our sakes so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that means when we stand there before the judgment seat, we ourselves are reckoned as if perfectly righteous because Jesus chose to take our place and become the one upon whom all of the wrath of God was poured against all, all sin that had ever been. And if that's true, then I can be broken by gratitude and grace. When, when we look, when I look to the day of reckoning, I don't need to be anxious. Instead, I can be a man of gratitude because Jesus took my place and he gave me his place. And from now on, I am therefore free, completely free, to pursue obedience to him as a gift rather than some kind of burden. And that means I can live in the world in the way that the world needs me to live so that it's good, so that I'm an agent of love and light and joy and peace and brotherhood and harmony instead of all the opposites because Jesus has settled the the debt that was mine and therefore I can gratefully be liberated and joyful to do what is right every day. That's what that garden means for the future. Isn't that good? Now, of course, already as I've been speaking, you hear me talking about things that are in the present, about being joyful and peaceful now and an agent of harmony and goodness now. Well, it brings us to the impact of the Garden of Gethsemane in the present, and if I had to put it into one word, I can, put, I can make it the word growing. The impact now is that now I can be growing every day. Because of what Jesus did back then, you can be growing instead of languishing. You can be making steps forward instead of feeling like you're always going backward or you're stuck in the same place. Maybe you have noticed that without God's help, no matter how hard you try, you get nowhere. Does anyone else admit that this morning? I am going to be patient. I say that to myself. And then I think that I'm going to be able to do it. And then five minutes later, I'm yelling again. Does that happen to anybody else? Yeah. I'm going to be understanding of others. And then I get behind a a car on the highway and they're going slow and swerving over and I'm just not nice. (laughs) I pray when I drive and then I do that when I drive. When we try to make progress on our own and if we're honest, we never get anywhere. But but here uh, we see in this move in Gethsemane towards self-offering, Jesus enables a new gift for us. And this is one that was hard for his disciples to accept. It was the gift that comes with his death and resurrection. But his disciples did not want him to depart from them bodily. He told them, it will be good for me to do this because then I can be with you spiritually. And this is the door that is open for us in the present, which enables growth because of what Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. And when you consider it and really open your mind to it, it is mind-blowing that Jesus, because of the power that is his in the resurrection, promises to be present inside of our hearts every day that we are at work in the gardens where he's called us to grow so that we never have to do that work without his presence enabling us to do it. It is now possible because of Jesus' act in Gethsemane, it is now possible for you not to wander away in sin anymore. Before you open your heart to him, you are always going to be taking the wrong road. 
But now, if you will open your heart to him and trust him, you will always and every single time have the power to choose as Jesus did in Gethsemane for obedience rather than disobedience. Uh, you can hear this a magnificent truth expressed in one of Paul's prayers that he prays for the folks in Ephesus. And now, as I read it, I want you to know that this prayer is as much for you as it was for them. It's for me and for all of us. In, in 3.17 in Ephesians, Paul prays, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. Uh, try to let the simplicity of those words sink into your hearts right now like a good seed going down into soil that has been prepared by the Holy Spirit. That Christ may dwell in your hearts, your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. Do you hear the agricultural metaphor there? Rooted and grounded? Picture a garden where the soil has been prepared by capable hands. And now there's a seed that goes in. The only way that seed grows up is when its roots go down. When its roots go into the ground so that it is settled. So that it's not wandering around and moving here and there. But sending its roots down. It's grounded. That's what God wants for you in Christ, for you to have your roots going down and being grounded. And do you see, do you notice what the soil is in which faith grows? The ground where it sends its roots down is love. Isn't that beautiful? One of the unique virtues of the faith that God gives us is that it's rooted in love, first of all. And, and listen now, the love that your roots are meant to go down into, first of all, is God's love for you. You you can overestimate the value of many things. You could never overestimate the value of God's love for you. You chronically, you chronically think that God loves you far less than he actually does. No matter how much you applied your imagination to it or your will to it, you could never grasp the, the, the breadth and the length and the height of God's love for you in Christ. The only way it could happen is if there was a miracle, and that's why Paul prays that that miracle would happen for the people in Ephesus. And that is a miracle that you, you should open yourself to. Would I today allow the miracle of my mind to appropriately grasp how wide God's love is for me? What Christ does in a heart that opens itself to him and trusts in him is to enable that heart to grow roots down into that love and believe each day in the present that God loves me this much and then, believing that, begin to bear the fruit that grows out of the love of God. And the first fruit is your love for God. That's the first thing that God invites you to. If you ask, what am I required of uh, in this faith that I'm invited to? First is to accept God's love and then to give love back to God. And that means just to be glad and thankful and at ease and at peace because the God who made everything loves you just that much. And then with him in your heart, the next step after accepting his love and giving it back to him is to say, how can I love the people around me? And now let's try that right now. The mystery of what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane is in the present we are free to grow. And right now ask, how can I grow by loving one person that God has put into my life? Who is the person that God the Holy Spirit is bringing to your mind right now? Okay, the first person who pops into your mind, that's the one right now God's saying, love that person. If you think, oh, it's so easy to love them, I can send them a message after the service and say something kind to them. Would you promise me that you'll do it today? Please, yes or no? Okay, if you're thinking, I could never love that person, they're the most awful person in all of creation. 
maybe that's who the Holy Spirit brought into your mind. Would you please trust that the Spirit meant for you to think of that person? And then ask that hard question, how can I love them? Right? Maybe it's just one little thing that God's inviting you to to love them today, to name that awful thing they did to you, which is why you hate them, and then to write it on a rock and throw it out the window while you're driving down the highway. Just make sure it's toward the... In the present, because Jesus chose obedience in that garden, you are 100% free to be growing. And that means to choose obedience in whatever the task is that God's calling you to. Hopeful, grateful, and growing. That's what you're invited to as you, as you decide to say, I'm going to be a person who regards this life that I've been given as a gift from God the Creator, who, the King who has invited me to have this royal task of also working in the garden. And then when you look back, look all the way back to Eden and be hopeful because Jesus destroyed that curse back there and brings freedom. When you look down the road, don't be anxious, be grateful because what, of what Jesus did in that garden, he's managed what, what, what you'll stand before one day. He's completely managed it for you. Just be grateful and then right now say, I'm gonna grow in love because the king is in my heart and he's gonna enable me to do it, whatever he calls me to, every single day. You are free to make that choice. Hopeful, grateful, and growing. I'm inviting you to do it. This church is gonna be a place where we work at that together. Would you do that? Yes? Thank God. Let's, let's ask for uh, the king, the gardener's help as we continue to work. God, we love you so much. We thank you for the gift of your scriptures, which have so much uh, wisdom in them, which can open our eyes to see the, the glorious truth of the good news of the gospel. We thank you that Jesus' choice for obedience in Gethsemane deals finally with Adam's choice for disobedience in Eden. We pray that the truth of it would sink into our hearts because of the time we've spent together this morning and every one of us would become more hopeful and more grateful and we would grow because of it. We thank you for all of the opportunities that you've put in our lives to receive your word and then to reflect the truth of it back into the world by simple obedience. And we also thank you that we don't need to do this on our own because you've chosen to dwell within us by the power of the Spirit. Our roots can go down into love and we can bear fruit, which otherwise would be utterly impossible. Help us receive your peace and your kindness and your gifts and reflect them back in the world that you've put us in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.